Um, just by way of introduction this morning, uh, let me remind you that we began a new series of studies last week from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 3, and 4, and the title of the series is Turning Faith Inside Out. We talked last Sunday about what that means and uh, the significance of this concept, and you'll recall if you were here last Sunday that I did something as a prophetic representation of that theme, and uh, I've done it again this morning, and some of you, like Jonathan, were looking at me um, thinking, wait a minute, what's wrong with that guy? He's got his shirt on inside out. Anybody want to confess that they noticed that this morning and thought that I was just getting old and hadn't noticed? Um, no, I did it on purpose. I, it's, I know it seems odd. It's a little crazy. Why would he do that? I did it as a symbol of what we're talking about. So I chose to put my shirt on inside out. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It's not, you know, senility creeping in. Yes, I am getting older, but I'm not quite that old yet. So, so thank you for trusting me. Um, we want to talk about what it means and what it looks like to turn our faith inside out. Because each one of us has something within us that God has done. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has touched and changed your life by the power of his grace, by the power of his love, and his spirit is within you. The question is, are you allowing that to show to the world around you? So this theme of turning faith inside out is something that we're going to come back to again and again for the next several weeks here, at least throughout the month of January, as we work our way through 2 Corinthians chapters 2, 3, and 4, which are all centered on this theme. So one of the things I asked you to think about last Sunday and asked you to do over the course of this time is to, to put together, spend a little time thinking, writing, praying, and preparing a two-minute testimony. Two-minute testimony. If somebody were to come up to you uh, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a relative. Somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I, 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 I realize you're a Christian, but why? Like, why? why? How, how do you know God's real? How did you become a Christian? How, why are you a person of faith? How would you respond to those questions? What would you say? How would you sum up in one or two minutes the essence of, of your relationship with God through faith in Christ and how it came to be. I submit to you that that's an important act of preparation for each one of us to think about so that when the time comes, and I trust that it will at some point in your life, you'll be prepared to give an answer for the reason or to give the reason for the, the hope that you have, as Peter says and. 1 Peter 3. So this morning, uh, I'm going to just uh, ask quickly. I have somebody lined up that's ready to do this, but has, did anybody else out there follow up and actually take some time to do this assignment yet? Anybody that's actually prepared a two-minute testimony? Yeah? Eric, are you, do you want to share this morning, or would you rather wait? Okay. <laughs> I'm giving you the choice, no pressure. I, okay, fantastic, come on up. 
All right, so we're going to do this every week for this year, 2019. That means I'm looking for 50 more people, that's most of you, to share a two-minute testimony sometime this year, okay? Thank you, Eric. I appreciate this. Well, I, I've been thinking about this, and there's three, there's three things, I guess, talking points about this. This may take longer, two minutes, but I hope not. It reminds me of a Geraldism, meaning when we went to his small group, these are the things that he would probably ask us. Um, first one, who are we? Where have we been and where are we going? Who am I? I'm, I'm stubborn, I'm strong-willed, uh, outspoken. I'm a pot stirrer at times. I'm not very tolerant. In Christ, I'm an ambassador. Uh, Corinthians, I don't know if it's second or first, 520 talks about being an ambassador. Ephesians 620 talks about being one too. I'm also a friend of Christ. Talks about that in John. I'm a son. I'm a heir. Uh, I'm a child. Basically, I'm a prince. Those who know the Lord are princes or princesses. Where have we been? Um, this is where I finished off, but I didn't get to the third part where we're going, but that's kind of a given. Where have we been? Without Christ, we are in chains. Who changed that? Christ did. How did he change it? Through the death and resurrection on the cross. He holds the keys. He broke the chain. He unlocked the lock. And for those who know Christ as Savior, are no longer bound. Where are we going? Well, as a church body, I would hope that we are moving forward, growing in Christ, and hopefully leading others to Christ. We're to go and make disciples. For me and myself, my, my opportunity is working in surgery. You guys have heard the stories. I've said the stories. Before I go any further, that nine-year-old I talked about, he's perfectly fine. Mm, amen. That is, people can't believe it. <laughs> That's why I'm there. That's why people who work in the medical field are there. We see things that normal people don't see, but that doesn't mean we're any more significant. God just has us in that place for the time. Um, I'm thankful for where I'm at at times. I get frustrated, but God is using me. He uses me to, one, tell people about Jesus, two, let them know that miracles still happen, and three, that there is a God. Mm. And to me, that's my two minutes. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Appreciate that. Well done. Thank you. So let me encourage all of you to be thinking about this and to spend some time um, considering how you would summarize your relationship with God through faith in Christ. How did you get there? How did you become who you are in Christ? And how would you explain that to somebody that's asking? So let me uh, take you now back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, our text for this morning, because I want you to see some things here with me that tie in 
to our theme of turning faith inside out. And the title really of my message this morning is Unveiled. You're going to see some references uh, as we look at this passage together to a veil. And we're going to talk about that veil, what it represents, why it's significant. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 34 to see a story of something that happened to Moses when he came down uh, Mount Sinai with the tablets of the Ten Commandments in his hands. So let me start here. I want to begin with a basic insight regarding what Paul is saying to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it really, uh, it really comes to this. What Paul's saying is that people who are in Christ, and I trust that's uh, most, if not all of us, people who are in Christ are meant to be radiant with the glory of the Holy Spirit shining from their lives. That's the essence of what Paul's communicating in 2 Corinthians 3. Now, I want you to just imagine for me being among the Israelites when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's hard, you know, it's a different culture, a different era, you know, uh, 4,000, 5,000 years ago. Um, it's hard to picture, you know, but, you know, think of people in togas out in the wilderness and, and Moses, there's a cloud on the mountain, there's thunder and lightning and all kinds of drama and, and you've been waiting all this time and then finally Moses reappears to the camp of Israelites at the foot of the mountain and in his hands he's got these tablets of stone upon which God has inscribed the Ten Commandments. It's kind of a crazy thing to try to imagine, but I think it's fun just to activate your imagination a little bit and try to picture the scene. Now, if I could help you just ever so slightly, what we read in Exodus 34 is that when Moses came down the mountain, his face was radiant with the glory of God. Now, this is a poor, you know, approximation, I know. Um, I wish I could just tape this to my head somehow, you know. Um, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is, oh yeah, headlamp, that would have been a good idea. What I'm trying to do is give you the idea that people couldn't even look at Moses. They were afraid to look at him because he was glowing with the glory of God. When he came down the mountain, Carrying the Ten Commandments, he was glowing with the glory of God. It's an amazing thing. Listen to this account from Exodus chapter 34, because this is the backstory to what Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware, this is the funny part, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, Hey, come on, it's okay, come, come on, over here. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them 
all the commands that the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. So picture this scene in your mind, right? Allow your imagination to run with it for a moment. The people, Moses comes down the mountain, his face is glowing, radiant with the glory of God, and the people see this, even though Moses is unaware of it, and instantly their first reaction is, oh my gosh, what happened to Moses? They're afraid. Something strange is going on. Moses' face is glowing with radiance. It's the glory of God. They don't know what it is at first. Probably confused and afraid, they flee because they don't know what to make of it. So Moses says, hey, it's just me. It's just me. Come on, come on. You know, it's okay. It's just me. He calls them back. They come over and Moses explains to them what's just taken place on the mountaintop and conveys to them all the law and the commands that he's just received directly from the Lord. So there's a word for this in English, and it's used in the account from from Exodus. It's not referred to specifically uh, in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but the word I want you to think about is radiant. Radiant. You know what that word means? It means sending out light by, by shining or glowing brightly. Sending out light by shining or glowing brightly. That's exactly what Moses was doing. And what's, I think, rather remarkable about this story is that it wasn't just a spiritual sensation. It seems to have been a literal physical sensation. It was visible to the human eye. Something was different about Moses when he came down from the mountain. So again, that's the backstory then that Paul is referencing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it's really, I think, a rather awe-inspiring story. I mean, we might read something like that, try to imagine it, and think, that's incredible. Incredible. What, I mean, what an amazing experience Moses must have had on the mountaintop. And what an amazing experience for the Israelites to see that reflected on his face. Imagine having to put your shades on because you can't look at Moses because the radiance of God's glory is shining from his face. Now, as awesome as that might have been, here's the point, right? Where are we going with all this? I want you to notice that Paul is drawing our attention to Moses for the sake of comparison and contrast. He's drawing our attention to Moses because he wants us to realize that as great as that was, something even better is happening now. Something even better, something even more glorious is happening now in the people of God, among the people of God. In fact, the very essence of 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11, is to compare the shortcomings of the Mosaic covenant, that is the law, with the beauty and glory of the new messianic covenant delivered by Jesus and brought home in each one of our lives by the Holy Spirit. So just a few things that 
Paul highlights and that Scripture highlights in other places as well regarding this comparison and contrast. The law, you might recall, brought death and judgment. You know, the day that Moses showed up in the camp, 3,000 people were put to death because of their idolatry. You remember the golden calf, that whole story? That's all part of this, right? So Moses comes down the mountain. The people are afraid. Well, some of them had good reason to be afraid because they were judged for having committed idolatry in Moses' absence. And that day, 3,000 people were put to death. You know what happened on the day that the Holy Spirit came upon the church? 3,000 people came to life. 3,000 people were saved. It's a direct comparison and contrast between the life that comes from the new covenant and the death that comes from the old. So the law, Paul says, brought condemnation, but the Spirit brings righteousness from God. Paul says the ministry that brought condemnation, which is the law or the old covenant, was only transitory compared with the ministry that brings righteousness, that is the ministry of the Spirit or new covenant, which is lasting. Okay? So get this in your mind. The old covenant, the law, the thing that Moses came down the mountain with is transitory, temporary, not lasting. But the new covenant, the covenant of the Spirit, the covenant of grace, the covenant of righteousness from God is permanent and lasting. Transitory means that as great as it was, as glorious it was, as it was, the glory shining from Moses' face was only temporary. It was not permanent. It was fading. But the radiant glory of the new covenant is permanent and lasting. So realize here, friends, the, the point that Paul's comparison is making for us. If the law came with glory on the face of Moses, here's the point, how much greater is the unfading glory that the Holy Spirit brings upon the faces of God's people who are under the new covenant? That's what you're supposed to think about as you read these words. How is the glory of God shining through my life? Paul sums it up really quite nicely for us in verses 10 and 11. For what was glorious, the law, has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory of the Spirit. Righteousness from God through faith in Christ. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? How much greater? How much greater? So here's the real kicker, right? We read this story about Moses. We think of Moses coming down representing the giving of the law, the Mosaic covenant. His face is shining with the glory of God. And then we can compare and contrast that with the coming of a new covenant in Christ, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the disciples of Christ on the day of Pentecost. And maybe you're thinking, oh, well, yeah, okay, on the day of Pentecost, some great things happened. All those guys that were filled with the Spirit, yeah, they, that was a pretty glorious experience. And maybe we could say, well, that surpassed what Moses experienced. The glory of Pentecost, 
on the first disciples was the surpassing glory that Paul's talking about? Well, yes and no. You see, I think that there are indicators all through 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that Paul is including himself in this and all of his readers in this reality. So he's not just referencing the disciples that were present on the day of Pentecost and first experienced that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, this is for all of us. This is for every follower of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is meant to be radiant in your life. And it's greater than the glory that was shining from Moses' face. Now, I think that there's a spiritual dynamic here. I'm not saying, you know, that every one of you, as you walk around from day to day, should look like this, right? And that people should have to wear sunglasses to look at you. What I'm saying is there's a spiritual dynamic here that Paul's explaining for us by which the Holy Spirit makes you radiant with the glory of God. And it's evident, it's tangible, it's visible, it's discernible. If Moses was literally radiant with the glory of the old covenant, how much more radiant should we be with the glory of the new covenant? That's the point of this comparison. What Paul's saying is that our faces and our lives are meant to be radiant with the splendor and glory of God's work in us. So that something different about us is evident to the world. That's what happens when the glory of Christ by the Holy Spirit fills your life. And may all of us be radiant like that, even more radiant than Moses was. You know, I think David had... Uh, a premonition about this, maybe a prophetic insight. And he said in Psalm 34, verses 4 and 5, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And then he declares, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. That's before the new covenant but I think it's a prophetic insight about what's to come, a messianic covenant that was to come. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Jesus himself talked about this in Matthew chapter 5. Maybe you'll remember uh, these famous words. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So what I'm saying is that this this radiance, this spiritual radiance that we're talking about here is available to every single one of us. This is not just for the great man or woman of God. This is not just for the apostles. This is not just for the, the ones that were there on the day of Pentecost. It's for all of us. Imagine someday at the end of your life that somebody writes a biography of your life. Now imagine that the title of the biography is Radiant Glory. What would it take for you to live into that between now and the end of your days? 
you know, this actually happened. I, I, I came up with this idea because I actually found a book about a dear old saint, a woman named Martha Robinson, of whom there was only one biography ever written. I don't know the backstory as to why uh, the man who wrote it, Gordon Gardner, uh, in 1962, wrote this biography. Maybe he was a relative of hers or something. But he wrote this biography about this dear old saint, a woman of God named Martha Robinson. And the title of the biography is Radiant Glory. What does that tell you about her life? Here's just a little bit about her um, from the preface to the biography. He says, Martha Wing Robinson was an unassuming little woman. Her name, known to few besides those with whom she had immediate contact during her lifetime. In other words, she's not famous. Among those few, however, were several ministers and missionaries who've labored labored extensively in this and other lands, and during the course of their ministry, they've referred to the unusual life and ministry of their teacher, Martha Robinson, to whom they owed so much. In other words, she had a profound impact because many other people were called to missions and ministry through her example. Her story is the odyssey of a soul from the quicksands of unbelief's shore to a land flowing with the milk and honey of God's own presence. Converted from near atheism just before the turn of the 19th century, she immediately consecrated herself to a life of prayer, Bible study, and implicit obedience to the will of God. As she continued her life of prayer and obedience, she was led on to a number of deeper experiences with God and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in 1906, where she was present at Azusa Street. She found Christ there as the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. With her own baptism in the Spirit, the Lord gave her an all-consuming cry to know Jesus in all of his fullness, to sink into nothingness, herself, and to be absolutely and fully possessed by Christ in her body as well as in her soul. After nine months of the most intense crying out to God, overwhelming as it may seem, God met her in exactly the manner which her soul craved. And from that point on, the idea is that her radiance in the Spirit was remarkable. This is what Martha Wing Robinson was known for. She was used of God to blaze a trail for others to follow into the realm of God's complete possession of body and soul, where it literally and actually became true, not just figuratively or spiritually speaking, that Christ was living through her. So again, imagine someone writing a biography of your life, entitled Radiant Glory. What would it look like for you to live into that reality? Now, what I want you to see here is that as Paul continues to define and explain this comparison between the glory of Moses and the Old Covenant with the glory of of us under the New Covenant, he talks about the process of transformation, the process. 
And so here's my, my second takeaway for you this morning. To shine for Jesus with ever-increasing glory, we have to dedicate ourselves to the ongoing process of spiritual transformation. So recognize that, that the glory of God reflected in your life is not a static reality. But it's not meant to fade like the glory did on Moses' face. It's meant to be ever-increasing. So it's going in the opposite direction, right? Think about the glory on Moses' face. It kept fading. And to get it renewed or restored, he had to go to the tent of meeting and meet with the Lord, and then the, the, the radiance would return. For us, what Paul says is that the movement, the change, the transformation of glory reflected in our lives is constantly meant to be increasing. So to shine with Jesus for ever-increasing glory, how does this work? We have to dedicate ourselves to the process of spiritual transformation. We all know discipleship's a process, right? But sometimes, tell me if I'm wrong, tell me if you disagree, but sometimes it feels like the process kind of stalls out. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like maybe at times you're like doing a two-step dance with Jesus? One step forward, one step back. One step forward, one step back. Are we getting anywhere? Sometimes we feel like we're not making much progress. Sometimes we look at our lives and we think, man, I haven't really changed all that much. I don't seem to be that much further along. Why why am I not growing in Christ the way that I think I, I, I should be? But what Paul's describing here for us in 2 Corinthians, uh, particularly verses 17 and 18, requires some long-term perspective. We are being changed, he says, by the Holy Spirit. We are growing in our experience of freedom. And over the long run, we are moving from glory to glory, ever-increasing glory is meant to be displayed in our lives. So he says in verse 18 that our ongoing transformation as followers of Christ is meant to be with ever-increasing glory. Take a look at this. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory who, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me give you some some fresh perspective on that verse, because it's a little convoluted to try to follow Paul's thinking, and uh, there's maybe an easier way to say this. I would put it to you like this. It's really quite simple. The more you become like Jesus, the brighter and more beautiful your life becomes to the world around you. The more you become like Jesus, the more radiant you become. The more the glory of Christ is reflected through your life. So let me give you some some perspective that I hope will inspire you to keep moving forward, to keep growing in faith, to keep growing in Christ-likeness. Just keep at it. Keep at it. Keep following Christ. Persevere through the challenges. 
Get back up on your feet after you fall or fail. Receive God's grace and get after it again. Just keep walking with Jesus and inviting the Holy Spirit to change you over time. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't be guilty or ashamed regarding your shortcomings and your failures. You might not see the difference in your growth over a few days or months, but hopefully over the course of a longer period of time, perhaps years, you will see the growth in your life. You'll see increased Christ-likeness. Find my place here again. So the idea is that we have to persevere. We have to stay after it. We have to be dedicated to the process of ongoing transformation. Hopefully over time, you'll see an increase in Christ-likeness and in the glory of God radiating from your life. So the emphasis, I think, in what Paul's saying, if you're reading between the lines with me here, is, is perseverance. Patient perseverance, steadfast dedication. Embrace the long, slow process of transformation in Christ. Don't allow yourself to get discouraged or distracted by by failures or shortcomings because it's all about the grace of God, right? The new covenant is righteousness from God, not righteousness from you. There's a song we sing um, sometimes uh, strikes me as odd. The lyrics go uh, in one line like, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. You know that line? And I, I want to, in my head, I want to say, no, if grace is an ocean, we're all swimming. And then I think of Dory, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. But, but the point is, it's, it's the grace of God that covers our lives under the new covenant so that we can keep moving forward with Christ, in Christ, so that we can persevere through every adversity and every shortcoming and every failure. It's the grace of God that surrounds us and covers us. That's why we're meant to be radiant. Because it's not about us, it's about God in us. Let me share with you an example, an illustration of this, I came across a great testimony uh, from a woman who was one of the stars of uh, the television show, The Biggest Loser. And if you've ever seen the show, not that I watch it regularly, but um, you'll know that it's about, you know, who can lose the most weight. And so uh, at the beginning of the show, everybody's out of shape and overweight, and then they enter this contest to kind of see who can lose the most weight, and they become the biggest loser. Well, Michelle Aguilar was the winner of The Biggest Loser, which I know is a bit of an oxymoron. But um, here's her story. She wrote a blog post about this and did a video for the website I Am Second. And uh, I love that website. If you've never checked it out, lots of great stories of people whose lives have been changed by the grace of God. And here's what she wrote about her experience on that show. She said, it's an easy step to turn to food. It becomes the vicious cycle of, I need comfort, and I think food will work. And then I try it, and it's not working. So I need more food. That's the cycle she had fallen into. And then she says, 
my biggest loser season was parents and kids versus husbands and wives. I won't ask if you saw it. They all had a really great connection and a great relationship. And when I looked in the direction of my mother, that was her partner on the show, I thought, when I look at you, I see the source of my pain. And I see the source of my weight gain. So she's in the show with her mother, and she's recognizing that her mother and the issues in her relationship with her mother are the source of her weight gain. Well, everybody has somebody that they love and feel really connected with. I'm here with somebody that I hardly know. And you can understand from those comments that there's a good bit of pain connected with this relationship in her life. So she says, I told God, okay, this is not going to work with me and my mom, so I'm going to give this to you. I'll give it all to you. And from that point forward, from that night on, things began to change. When I showed up back at the finale, I was a changed person. I really, truly began to walk in love and forgiveness toward my mom. The scale ultimately wasn't going to define me. My weight wasn't going to define me. The smile on my face or the lack of smile wasn't going to define me because I was determined from that point on to let God define me. Me being in control was really me being out of control. So now, I have Christ first because I know that in him is the fullness of life. There's an example for you of this transformative process, right? And it's multifaceted. It's not just about losing a little weight and looking a little better. It's about going to the deep places in your heart where there's woundedness or brokenness and allowing the Lord to reveal that and bring healing. So that brings me then to one last insight. We have a few minutes left to wrap this up. I want you to think about the veil, the veil that Moses had to put on. Paul comes back to that theme at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, and he talks about it just a little bit more. And here's the point. Don't veil the radiance of God's presence in your life. Let it shine. And I hope as I say that, you're thinking now again of this theme, turning faith inside out. One of the ways that we fail to turn faith inside out is that we hide it. We cover it up. We don't want it to be revealed. Sometimes we want it to be hidden. hidden. We don't want it to be seen because we are painfully aware of our own imperfections our own shortcomings. So let me draw your attention here to the concept that Paul's touching on when he describes the veil of Moses. Because there's something really significant here for us to understand. In fact, I got to tell you, this is, this is a, a recent revelation for me. I, I love this passage. I've probably um, quoted that verse where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom many times over the course of the years. I know that I've taught on it multiple times. 
And it's easy to just focus even on that particular verse, verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's a lot there to unpack. What does that freedom mean? What does that freedom look like? How do we work it into our lives? How do we experience it? How do we welcome the ministry of the Holy Spirit? But I'd always assumed, as I read this passage, that Moses put the veil on because people were afraid to look at him. And it's obvious that they were afraid to look at him. If you read the text closely, both in Exodus and in 2 Corinthians, you see that. But this time, this week, as I studied this out and went a little deeper with it, I felt like the Lord sort of took a veil off of my own eyes so that I could see the dynamic that was actually at work here. I want to tell you something. Paul did not, um, not Paul, Moses did not put the veil over his face because people were afraid to look at him. He put the veil over his face because he was afraid to be seen without the glory of God. Now think about that for a minute. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Now, before I get to the references that explain this and um, spell it out for us, let me just give you an image to think about. Really, two images come to mind for me as I think about a veil, veiling your face. Uh, The first one, of course, one that we're all familiar with and a beautiful image is the image of a a bride walking down the aisle with her, her face veiled before the groom, right? And she's, in that case, um, hiding or uh, covering her, um, her beauty. And it's, uh, the veil, in that sense, and use, as it's used in a wedding, is typically seen as a symbol of, of innocence, a symbol of purity. And it's not until uh, a certain point in the ceremony where, where the bride you know, removes the veil and is able to look at the groom eye to eye and face to face. But there's another image of a veil Um, that's not so positive. It's more of a negative image. In this case, the veil is used not to cover innocence and purity. It's not a symbol of innocence and purity. To the contrary, just the opposite. The veil in this case is used as a symbol of guilt and shame. It's the image of a a robber or a bandit, right, with uh, their face covered, veiled, to protect their identity so that they can't be identified as the one who is guilty of committing a crime. So there's two senses here in which a veil uh, can be used in our own culture that we're probably familiar with. Which one is closer to what's happening? I think it's the second one, actually. I submit to you that Moses is covering his face because he doesn't want people to see that the glory is fading. And Paul makes this clear to us. So let me take you back to Exodus 34 first, and then fast forward to 2 Corinthians 3 again. Exodus 34, verses 33 to 35. Listen closely. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face after he finished speaking. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, that is the Lord, he removed the veil until he came back out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw, again, that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. 
So think about this. Notice that the radiance on Moses' face was a sign to everyone that Moses had been in the presence of the Lord. But after a while, it would begin to fade. And notice as well then that when the glory would fade, Moses would return to the tent of meeting to go and be with the Lord. And when he would come back out again, the radiance was restored. So if I can give you an analogy here, I mean, imagine one of these flashlights has um, bad batteries, right? And the brilliance of the light begins to fade and, and grow dim. And what do you do? Well, you have to replace the batteries or recharge the batteries if they're rechargeable, right? And so you go, you recharge the batteries, and then the brightness, the radiance of the light is restored again to its former brilliance. That's a picture of Moses, right? He comes out of the tent of meeting. He's shining with the radiance, the glory of God. It begins to fade. He doesn't want people to see that it's fading. He covers his face until he goes back into the tent of meeting. He meets with the Lord, takes the veil off, gets the glory restored, comes back out, talks to the people, tell them, you know, tells them what God had to say, and then puts the veil back on until he can go back to the tent. And what's remarkable about this, and I'd never seen this before, is that it wasn't just when he came down the mountain that Moses was radiant. His radiance continued every time he went to the tent of meeting. It was restored. And he would come back out, speak to the people. They would behold the radiance and the glory of God on his face. And then after he'd spoken with them, he would cover it back up and go back into, uh, until he could go back into the tent again. Now, pair that with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Here's the, here's the key to interpreting all this and understanding it. Paul says, We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Think about that. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. He didn't want them to see the glory fading. So this wasn't about their fear. This was about his fear. Not wanting the people to see the fading glory, Moses would veil his face until he was able to go back and speak with the Lord again and have it restored. So his face wasn't just glowing when he came down the mountain. It would begin to fade until he went back into the tent of meeting and had the radiance restored by the presence of God. And then what Paul says is, all of this is insightful and instructive for us, those of us who are under the new covenant, because the veil has been removed for us. There was a veil over our hearts. When we come to Christ, that veil is removed. And then he says in verse 18, now we who with unveiled faces reflect the glory of God with ever-increasing glory, we are being transformed by the Spirit. So, what does this mean for us? It, it wasn't the people's fear that caused Moses to veil his face. It was actually the fading glory. Moses didn't want them to see the glory fading away. He wanted to be radiant, as should we. 
He didn't like the fact that the radiance on his face kept fading, and he had to have it restored by the presence of the Lord. And so this insight then regarding Moses' use of the veil is important for understanding how Paul describes the veil covering the hearts of those who are apart from Christ. Because there's a similarity, there's a parallel here between the veils, right? What he's saying is that people who are still under the law, people who are apart from relationship with Christ, have not yet received righteousness from God through faith in Christ, have a veil covering their hearts. And then in verse 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So you're meant to see the similarity here between what Moses was doing and what happens in our lives and the differences at the same time. Again, it's a comparison and contrast between the two experiences. So Paul says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, just as it was for Moses, only better. Right? When Moses would go back to meet with the Lord, he would take the veil off and his radiance would be renewed and restored. But for us, who have received righteousness from God and are not under the law, because the Spirit of Christ is living in us, the veil has been taken away forever. We don't have to go back to the tent of meeting to get our radiance restored because the Spirit of Christ is in us and with us all the time. So, I hope I'm not complicating this too much, but what I want, you to, I want you to hear and take away is that God desperately wants you to recognize that your life is meant to reflect his glory all the time. Wherever you go, whatever you do, whoever you interact with, the radiance of Christ is meant to be visible in your life. Only then, as people see that radiance, will they be drawn to it and want to have the veils over their own hearts removed. So the heart of God, my friends, the heart of God for us is that we would shine brightly for Christ that his radiance would be evident in our lives. I love the chorus of the song made popular by the newsboys, Shine, right? I won't sing it, but I'll read it for you. Shine. Make them wonder what you got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking in. Shine. Let it shine before all men. Let them see good works and then let them glorify the Lord. That's a beautiful lyric that captures the heart of God for us. So let's pray that it would be true. Amen? Lord, thank you.